Hey, this is Stephen, and I want to welcome you or welcome you back to the Grove Church Podcast. For more information or to find more resources like this one, be sure to visit us at grove.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope the following message is encouraging and meaningful to your life. Well, good morning and good morning. Welcome again to the Grove. My name's Stephen, and we are so glad that you are with us today. If you are joining us for the very first time, or maybe joining us for the first time in a while, we are in week two of a sermon series called Welcome to the Party. Maybe you walked in and saw the balloons and you're like, is this a normal thing that y'all do? It's a lot of latex in the room. And uh, no, it's not a normal thing that we do, but we did want to make sure that the room matched what we're talking about. And so the last week and the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about this idea of a party. And the reason that we're talking about this idea of a party is because we think that there are versions of church that maybe you encountered growing up, or maybe it's what you experienced as a young adult that caused you to walk away from church. But there are versions of church that are frankly just kind of unappealing. These places that maybe feel a little cold, a little sterile, a little impersonal, you got to be really quiet and obey a lot of rules. And if you don't, then there's a lot of judgment and guilt and criticism. And, and so we think that there might be a different version of what church is. And in fact, when you look at the scriptures and when you look at the way that Jesus lived his life and the way that Jesus interacted with other people, what you realize is maybe some of the versions of church that we grew up with or experienced or ran from are vastly different than the environments that Jesus created. The types of interactions that Jesus had with other people and the nature of his relationships. And so we think that there's a little bit of reclamation work that we need to do. There's a little bit of revisionist history that needs to happen about what the church is and what the church should be and what the church could be. And we think of all of the examples and all of the illustrations and metaphors that you could come up with for what Jesus called this original group of people, probably a party is the closest that we could get to it. It captures all of these subtle nuances and and essences of the way Jesus lived his life, the way Jesus called his followers to live their lives. And so it's less the church that maybe we grew up with and it's a different thing. It's a party. It's that dinner party that went far longer than you thought it would. It's that surprise party that you showed up to and all of the people that you loved and cared about were there. It's this thing that you attended that you didn't have high hopes for, but when you walked in, it just felt right. And you met all of these really kind and gracious and generous people who you now are friends with all because of an experience. We think it looks a whole lot more like this. And so what we want to do over the next couple of weeks is just talk about what are some of those characteristics of a party that should be true of a church. And last week, we kicked it off with a conversation with my friend Paige Chenault. Paige is the founder and chief birthday enthusiast at the Birthday Party Project, which Allie talked about. And it's an incredible organization that what they do is they throw birthday parties. And so we brought her up to have a conversation about what makes a great birthday party and why parties matter. And more importantly, why the joy that's celebrated and the joy that's shared in a party can be transformative for people's lives. And so if you missed that conversation with Paige and I, if you're wondering why we have this gift drive, toy drive going on, I hope that you'll go back and check out that conversation. It's a really important conversation, not only about what the church could look like, but also about some other people here in Dallas who are doing some really great work 
to spread joy and to spread love. So today, we're going to look at another aspect, another characteristic of what a party really is about, another characteristic of really what the church should be about. And maybe above all of the other characteristics and aspects of a party, this one might be the most important because I think this one is most likely kind of the lead domino for all of the other habits and all of the other characteristics of a church. Uh, it's similar in a way to maybe a keystone habit. Maybe you've heard of this idea of a keystone habit, or maybe you haven't heard of the term, but you know the effects of a keystone habit. So for me in my life, exercise is a keystone habit. It's the habit that if I can consistently do this, then I will consistently do all of these other things. So if I make sure that I exercise regularly, it causes me to pay a little bit more attention to the quality and the type and the quantity of food that I eat. So the more consistent I am with my exercising, the less likely I am to pull through the window of a fast food drive through or to order the extra side of fries and the truffle butter and all of the stuff because I start to think about, well, is this habit, is this action consistent with this other thing? And then as I exercise and as I pay attention to the food that I eat, it also causes me to pay attention to all the other things that I do or don't put into my body. And then it also causes me to pay attention to, okay, well, what's the kind of sleep that I'm getting? And am I resting enough to be able to keep up with all of the other things that I want to do in my life on top of the exercising? And so what, what happens is this cascade effect that if we can get this first thing right, if we can implement this first habit, then all of these other habits become easier. My guess is for you and your family, there are some keystone habits or some lead habits that you experience in your life. Maybe you've learned that for your family, the only way that you can get out of the door to school on time in the morning is if you make lunch for your kids the night before. Everything else seems to work when you make lunch the night before or you pack the backpacks the night before. For some reason, if you don't make the lunches, you're 15 minutes late to school. And the lunches don't take that long to put together, but there's something about all of the other things that seem to happen in coordination with the lunch and so forth and so forth. So today we're going to talk about this one habit that is probably the keystone habit and the lead habit for who we should be as followers of Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and this is your first time with us or maybe first time in a while or just first time in a church in a long time, uh, this is going to feel kind of like we're pulling back the curtain and letting you kind of see how the sausage gets made. And so if you're walking in and you're like, well, this didn't really seem all of that relevant for kind of what I thought we we're going to be talking about, just hang with us. We'll get there. Uh, but this morning is going to be really about who we should be as a church and the thing that I think is the most important thing that we do day in, day out. Now, if this is home for you, some of you do this thing that I'm going to talk about really well. In fact, some of you do it better than I do. A lot of you do it better than I do. And so I'm borrowing from what I observe you doing. And for some of us, it's just a reminder of how we should live and how we should act. And this habit is simple. And it's something that maybe you've heard talked about in church. And I've tried to create as much tension and suspense about what this habit could be as I could. And so finally, like, some of y'all are just like, dude, just tell us what the habit is. Like, all right, come on. What I think that could change everything, change everything for the way that we act as a church, it could change everything about the way that you serve here at the church, the way that 
you spend your time here at the church, the way that you give to the church, the way that you even evaluate the programs and what we do as a church, it's all based on this one thing. And that's inviting people to church. So if you'll just bow your heads, we'll close in prayer and I'll send you out to just spread the word. No, see, the reason that we got to talk a little bit more about inviting people to church is my guess is you know that you're supposed to do that. It's this thing that maybe you've heard before or you assume to be true, but we don't do it. But to me, it seems a little odd that we don't talk about our faith. We don't talk about church. We don't share about what's going on at church with other people. We don't invite people. It's a little puzzling because the way that we operate in every other category of our lives is we share stuff. We share the things that are meaningful. We share the things that are enjoyable. We even share the stuff that we didn't like. I'm constantly being bombarded by all of your kind suggestions about all of the things that I should try, buy, listen to, experience, read. I love it. I lo- because that's the way that we come in contact with new ideas and new opportunities, new things that we should spend our time with. My guess is, the last book you've read, the last movie you've watched, or the last podcast you've listened to, or even restaurant you've tried, came at a recommendation from somebody that you know and trust. It's actually one of the ways that I subconsciously evaluate who I spend my time with, is the quality of their recommendations. Like if, if I spend time with you and then you start to suggest things and I go try these things, and they're not that good, I notice that I spend less time with people like that. Some of you are like, well, I don't wanna hang out with you, which is fair, like for a lot of reasons. But what I notice is we tend to gravitate towards people who we trust in their ability to recommend to us things that are valuable, that are meaningful, that are enjoyable. It's also how the whole nature of how we've learned to consume things is created. I am constantly wasting my time reading reviews on Amazon. I don't know if you've ever done this or if you spend time doing this. Maybe some of you are wondering like, who spends time with these Amazon reviews? That'd be me. I'm the reason Amazon reviews exist. If I wanna buy something or if I'm considering buying something and I see that there are 387 reviews, it's like, okay, how much time? All right, let's see what these people have to say. Because I wanna get an understanding of whether or not I should actually, actually buy it. It also spills over into how I choose movies. I am notorious, and I have some friends and family in my life who know this. If we have an hour and a half or two hours to watch a movie on Netflix, I'll spend the first hour looking through movies and comparing the movie to what the reviews say. I'm really selling myself well here this morning. But I care about what people say. I care about what people recommend. I wanna know, like, okay, is this really worth my time? And so I really trust and I really rely on all of the nameless, faceless people out there who feel inclined to post about whether or not they like the movie or whether or not they like the product or the service or the restaurant. We do this. My guess is you do this also. But my guess is also there's one category and area of your life that you don't do this in. And that would be here. That would be at church. That would be with your faith in God. And so I think we got to spend a little bit of time this morning asking the question, why? Why is that the case? Now, for some of you, if you do this, if you're constantly inviting people to church, 
you're off the hook this morning. You just get to relax knowing that you're more righteous than all these other people who are here this morning. You can check the football scores or catch up on Facebook, whatever you got to do. But for the rest of us, my guess is we don't talk about this part of our life very much. And my guess is there's a couple of reasons why. And the first reason is probably because we have some mental picture, some mental understanding of what it would look like to talk about our faith. And maybe for you, it feels like to talk about your faith would look something like this. You got to put a sandwich board on and you got to walk up and down the street and you got to shout at people that you don't know and tell them all the things that they're doing wrong and why they need to change their lives and come back to church. My guess is we think that there's this suboptimal kind of judgmental, critical, kind of creepy version of the way that you share your faith. Maybe some of you, you kind of left the church for a while because this is the version of sharing that people did with you. They wanted you to come to church and the way that they convinced you that you needed to come to church is by pointing out all the ways and reasons that you made mistakes. All the ways that you weren't good enough in your own life. And so you come to this conclusion that if that's true, I don't want to go to a place and be reminded of that. And I think for a lot of us, we think that this is what it means to talk about our faith, to share our faith. But I don't think that's true. And so I want to spend some time this morning giving us a different mental picture of what it could look like. What it could look like to implement this one habit, this one behavior, that this isn't for dramatic effect, I really do think could change everything. And we're going to do so through a story that nobody uses to make this point. In fact, the story that we're going to look through is almost exclusively used to make an entirely different point. And that's why I love it. Because it's hidden and it's at the very end. And so let's jump in. So in the fourth chapter of John, there's a story that maybe you're familiar with. It's about Jesus and a conversation with he ha that he has with a woman. So, now he, being Jesus, had to go through Samaria. Now, if you understand first century geography, that would be like, after church is out, a Texas fan gets in their car and has to drive through Norman, Oklahoma. That's the feeling and sentiment that people who were Jewish, like Jesus had, about being in Samaria. It's the last place that they want to be, particularly on this Sunday morning tough game. Jesus had to go through Samaria. And he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. And Jesus, tired from the journey, sat down by a well, and it was about noon. So in this, the writer of John is trying to set up a scene that all of the first century listeners would understand. Jesus is a Jew on a long journey, chooses to go through enemy territory, and he ends up in a town at a well at the peak of the heat of the day. He's tired, he's thirsty, and he finds himself at this well. And then a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. Now for us today, this is normal because I guess if you needed water, you go to the well to get water. But to the very first listeners of this story, they would automatically realize that something was up. And maybe you've heard this before. The reason this woman is drawing water at noon is an important detail. Because if you lived in the first century and you went to draw water, 
the last thing that you'd want to do is to draw water at the hottest part of the day. You do it early in the morning when it was nice and cool or early in the evening when it would cool down again. It's not like summers in Texas where you wake up and it's 95 degrees and you go to bed and it's 95 degrees. There's a little bit more temperature change. And so you would time your water getting with when it was nice and cool. And so it's odd that this woman would be coming at noon in the middle of the day to go get water. And as we'll see in a second, there's a reason that she does that. She's avoiding all of the other people who were going to get water. It's a social thing that women did in the first century. They would all get up early in the morning and go get water. And that's where they talk about their husbands and how they don't pick up their socks and they leave their clothes on the floor and how frustrated they are with their kids. And, and then they take the water back into town. But this woman doesn't do that. She goes when she knows nobody else will be there because of some things that have happened in our life, some choices that she has made and is currently still making. And so Jesus sees this woman coming and he speaks to her. And he says, well, you give me a drink. And the reason that Jesus asks is because all of his disciples have left to go into town to buy food. Now, this is an unusual thing, as we'll see in a second, because just like we pointed out that Samaria is enemy territory, it was highly, highly unlikely. It was against all cultural norms and customs that a Jew would speak to a Samaritan. And she points this out. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Why are you even looking at me, much less speaking to me? That's not what people do. Surely you know the rules. And Jesus answered, and he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now this takes an immediate sharp turn and the woman's like, whoa, I was just trying to wonder why you were speaking to me and now you're talking about this living water thing and I'm a little confused. And so they begin to have this conversation that moves immediately past surface level. It goes deep below the surface and begins to address the things of God, the things of substance, the spiritual nature of stuff, that area of our life that we don't like to talk about. The area of the life that we're sometimes fine to operate in here at church but it's hard to put language around. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She fundamentally misunderstands what Jesus is offering her. I think this is similar to the way that we often approach things with God. We have this limited understanding of the way that God can meet our needs. And God's trying to do some, something so much deeper, something so much bigger, something at the very core of our being. And we're like, yeah, I'll, I'll take water that never runs out. Is it like the dog bowl thing that just constantly fills up every time you drink? Like, you know, what is this water that never runs out, Jesus? Like, I'm in, I'm interested. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you're missing the point. There's something so much more meaningful and valuable here for you. If you could just understand, if you could just recognize and accept it. And so they have this conversation about water and she doesn't get it. And Jesus is trying to offer her something more and he says, all right, fine. Go call your husband and come back. And then she responds. And she's like, well, I don't have a husband. I don't really understand what he has to do with the water situation. But since you asked about my husband, I don't, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus says to her, you're right. You don't have a husband. The fact is you've had five of them. You got a lot of husbands. And the man you're with now is not your husband. 
And thus he reveals why she's at the well at noon. She's ashamed. She's embarrassed. She's a social outcast from her group of friends or her village because of the choices that she's made in her life. And here she comes to the well trying to avoid being known, trying to avoid being seen. And she meets the one person who knows it all and sees it all. And she has this conversation with Jesus. And it begins to change her. It begins to cause her to think differently about the choices that she's made and the way that she lives her life. And she recognizes that there's something bigger happening here. There's this shift that begins to happen on the inside of her life. And maybe for you, this is why you keep coming back to church. Because you're not like you used to be anymore. Or you don't want to be the way that you used to be. And you can't really name it or put your finger on it. And if you were forced to describe it, you'd fail to really do it justice. But you just know that there's something that shifted in your life. All of a sudden you have more patience with your kids than you used to. You feel less insistent on criticizing other people. You're quicker to forgive. You're more generous with your time and your resources and your, to the people in your life. You're actually present when you go home in a way that you never were present before. You actually find yourself praying about things and trusting that God is at work in your life. And this is starkly different than maybe the way that you used to live and operate. This change that you're experiencing, this shift, this is the same thing that the woman standing here at this well talking to Jesus is experiencing. And so this woman puts down her water jar and she goes into the city. Now I think this is where her story often diverges from ours. We've all had some experience that draws us closer to God, that orients us more towards God in a way that maybe we weren't before, that pulls us in, that keeps us coming back, that stirs and does something inside of us and we're starting to notice changes or the desire to make changes in our life. And then she goes off to the city. She goes back to her normal life or at least we go back to our normal lives. We get back into the routine, back into the day-to-day, -day, and we just take what's happening in our, in our hearts and in our lives and in our thoughts, and we just stick it over there on the shelf because we don't really know what to do with it. We don't know how to process it, and we certainly don't know how to talk about it. That's what we do, most of us. But that's actually not what this woman does. She sets her water jar down and she goes back into town. And then she starts to talk about it. And she goes and she says to the people, and I don't know who the people are or how she starts this. Maybe she calls up her best friend and she's like, you will not believe what happened to me. Or maybe it's her mom or her sister. Or maybe she calls, you know, her, her guy. And she's like, honey, you will not believe what happened when I went to the well today. And she begins to talk about this thing that's happened to her with the people that maybe are closest to her. Maybe she gets the sandwich board and starts walking up and down the street. We don't really know. All we know is she does the thing that we often don't do and that she starts to talk about it. And she starts to talk to the people. But pay attention to what she says and what she doesn't say. She doesn't run out and say, you won't believe what's happened to me. You need to, you need to change your lives and you need to read this scripture and you need to, you need to, you need to, you need to. 
It's not what she does. She just says, y'all got to come see this. Y'all got to come experience. Just come and sit with me. Just come with me and check this out. You will not, you're not going to believe what happened to me. There's a man who told me everything that I've done. And something's, something's changed in me. Something's shifted. And, and I don't really have all the answers. And then she ends with this. She says, could this man be the Christ? And in that time period, they knew what that word Christ meant. It meant Messiah. It meant the chosen one. It meant the one who God would send to make everything better. And so what she's saying is, y'all got to come check this out. There's somebody who's changed me. And it might be God. Because see, I think the tendency that we have in our own lives is we don't go and talk about it because I think we feel like we have to have all the answers for the people that we want to talk about it with. We feel like we have to know all of the philosophical and scientific arguments for the plausibility or the existence of God or how do you explain dinosaurs in the Bible or where do aliens, you know, all this stuff. We feel like we have to know all of these things or be able to point in scripture to answer all of the questions. Well, you see here and that's not what she does. She doesn't assume or expect that she has to be an expert, that she has to have all of the answers. All she has to be is a signpost. And she just says, like, look, come and see. There's a guy, and after spending time with him and after experiencing this, I'm, I'm different. Like, I've, I'm starting to change. And I think it's God. And so, as a result of, of her sharing, of her inviting, of her just pointing, many Samaritans in that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's word. But it's not just the argument that she created. It's not the way that she could point to scripture or do this recall from a sermon that she heard three weeks ago. All she did was invite people. And the way that she paired that was with what had happened in her own life. That's what it says when she testified. He told me everything I'd ever done. I think sometimes that we make or we assume inviting people to church has to be this big scary thing. And I'm not sure that's true. What if it was as simple as saying, hey, over the last little bit of time, I've been going to this church. I'm telling you, it's making a difference. I'm, I'm happier. I'm better. I'm making wiser choices. It's made an impact in my life. And do you want to come with me? We're doing this really cool birthday party next week, and there's going to be like bounce houses and food trucks. Like I can't promise that everything in your life's going to be fixed after next week, but like I keep coming back, and it keeps helping. Would you want to come sit with me? I'll save you a seat. You know who does this best? Your children. Your children are so good at this because they're still innocent enough, maybe naive enough to not get to the place where they think they have to have all the answers. Here's what your children do. They leave Grove Kids 
and they've had such an amazing experience and they've had so much fun learning about who God is and what God is doing in their life that they go tell their friends, you should come to church with me. And the other kid's like, sure, I'll come to church with you. We have more visitors. We have more guests in our kids' environment because they understand that it's actually far simpler than maybe as adults we think it needs to be. And so they say, hey, I have a lot of fun here. Come have fun with me. What if we begin to do that? Because see, here's what happens in the story. As she begins to share what's God, what God is doing in her life, the way that the change has been happening in her heart and in her mind and in her choices and thoughts and actions, and she says, hey, you should come with me, many Samaritans begin to believe. But that's not the best part of the story. The best part of the story is what happens next. So all these Samaritans who felt inclined to take her up on her invitation, they came. And because they came, they had an opportunity to spend time with Jesus. They had an opportunity to have the exact same type of experience that changed this woman. They began to listen to him and to spend time with him and to learn from him and to understand that maybe the way that they are currently living needs to pivot a bit. Or maybe the way that they're thinking about things should adjust slightly and they begin to recognize that there might be something to what this guy has to say. Now, it said many Samaritans believe because of her testimony, but here's what happens last. Many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said. Thank you for your invitation. Thank you for sharing your story. That was the catalyst to get me to come. Because you were willing to share what's happened in your life, I showed up. But let me tell you what happened when I showed up. I met somebody named Jesus and I began to experience what he can do in my life. And we no longer believe because of what you said. We now know for ourselves because of what we've experienced and because of what we've heard, that this man is the savior of the world. I think we assume too much responsibility when we approach inviting other people to church. It's far simpler. All you have to do is talk about what's happened in your life. You don't even have to go into all the details. Just, hey, this has made a difference. This has helped me. Would you want to come to church with me? Would you want to come and sit with me? We'll even pick you up. We'll take you to brunch after. We'll save you a seat. Some of you are really good at this. Because here's what will happen when you begin to do this. They get to come and sit and experience Jesus. And because of that, their lives will begin to change. And they'll come to know for themselves that he is the savior of the world. You don't have to do that. You don't have to convince them of that. All you have to do is to share what God's done in your life and invite them to come with you. And I believe that once we come to the realization that Jesus is the savior of the world and what he can do in our life, it really will change everything because it begins to change us. So here's what I want you to do. As you leave, 
whether it's today, whether it's tomorrow or the day after, I want you to begin to think about who you could share this with. Some of you, it might need to be the person that you are closest to in the world because that's the type of relationship that you trust beginning to share this with. That's fine. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a loved one. Maybe it's a coworker. But for some of you, as you do this, you'll get more comfortable talking about the fact that the church has been helpful, that God is doing something in your life, and that you'd love for them to come with you. As you begin to share, and as you begin to talk about it, people will come because of your invitation. And I promise you, their lives will change. Could you imagine what it would look like this time next year as we get ready to celebrate our third birthday? And this place is filled with faces that you invited, lives that were changed because all you said is, hey, you should come sit with me. Marriages that didn't end up in divorce, relationships that were healed, people who found new courage to live. You don't have to do that. God will do that. All you have to do is just talk about what God's done in your life and to invite them to experience the same thing. It'll change everything. And so I hope you will. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. And many of us, we're here this morning because we can speak to what you've done in our lives. We can speak to the fact that we are now different because of your love, because of the way that you work in us, helping us to think differently, to act differently, and to choose differently. And so God, in this moment, we ask for your strength and your encouragement to begin to share that story with other people, to begin to share our story with other people, to begin to share the story of what you are doing in us. And then God, just give us the courage to extend the invitation. Would you come and see? Will you come with me? Will you come sit next to me? And God, we trust that you'll take over from there because we know the power that exists in you, the power for you to change everything. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Dallas area, we would love for you to visit us. For directions, service times, and more info, visit us at grove.org.